last Sunday night, I was with my home group and I said, hey guys, this is what I think I'm going to do. Uh, and, and I told them about th- this particular topic and kind of the direction that I was going to go. And um, they said, do it. You need, I think that's a good idea. So if at the end of it all, you're like, come on, man, you, just blame it on my home group. All right? Take it out on this. I'm just kidding. The reason that I want to do this, this particular topic, and the reason I, I, I find it important is, number one, it's in God's Word. But secondly, historically, and when I say historically, the last 20 years that I've been involved, the church has taken two different approaches to sexuality in God's Word. And number one is this. They've ignored it. They just pretended it did not exist. In fact, this week as I was studying and thinking about it, I don't think I've ever been in a service on a Sunday morning, um, what I used to call big church, uh, where the, the, the pastor talked about this issue. I don't think I've ever been in one. I've been, I was drugged to church nine months before I even got into this world. And I don't think I've ever been in a service where it was talked about. So I think a lot of pastors, a lot of churches ignore the issue. I mean, it is, after all, easier to do that, right? And so that's what they've done uh, historically. And when I say historically, I don't mean long term. I mean in my life. The second way that they've approached this issue uh, and it's usually the youth pastor, uh, at least in my, in my experience, is they look at it and, and they say, no, 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 no. And if you do, then somehow you're morally inferior to those who are good enough to not do it. And it never shared... This issue, the, 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 the youth pastor never shared this issue in light of the gospel. In light of the, the gospel which transforms and changes everything for those who know Christ and have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. They never shared the freedom. They never shared the, the, the forgiveness. They never shared any of that. It was just a list of things you do and a list of things you don't. And if you're a good enough Christian, then you'll do them. And if you're morally inferior, then you're just not good enough to measure up, as if any of us are anyway. Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler, he has a, a video that, that, that articulates this, I think, better than any of us, I mean, than, 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 than I ever could. And so I wanted to share that with you. He talks about it in context of his ministry, but I just want you to hear the story. And then I'll kind of give you a backdrop in my life and how this story intersected my life as well. So, here you go. But it it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, started to rub against or collide with the church. And, And so it wasn't very long and, and I, I won't. I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but but really one that kind of broke the camel's back. Where I decided, if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example. Um, this turn in me, this break in me, happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when. Um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back 
to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know. And so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And and so we talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, This is the relationship we have, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, um, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, what, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh. This could be a problem. And and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it. Do it. And I'm going to teach. And and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you're right. And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up, Rose is just completely jacked up, it's broken, the things are off, the pedals are broken, and and he lifts it up, and his big crescendo, I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger, and it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! That's the point of the gospel! That Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. Yes. Amen. Amen. And I sat through that exact same talk seven times as a teenager. 6th grade through 12th grade. Multiple youth pastors. About the same time of year. I don't know if that was like youth ministry 101 at the seminary they went to or what. But um, I sat through the exact same talk. Seven times. Seven times. And never once was I told about the gospel. Now I had parents who told me about the gospel. I was a believer at the time. But I had friends who, who today have nothing to do with the church because they couldn't measure up as if any of us can in any area of our life, especially when it comes to sexuality. And so before I'll even jump into the scriptures this morning, when it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to it, the bottom line is this. And when I talk about sexual sin, maybe I should even define that. It's kind of a broad thing. Anything outside of marriage, anything, what you look at, what you talk about, anything outside of the scriptural bounds of marriage is what I'm talking about. 
When it comes to any of that, Jesus is better. Amen. It's the bottom line. Jesus is better. And he proved it when he died on the cross for you. So many years ago. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Sure, it's a sensitive subject. But it's a, it's a subject where you see the glory and the, the goodness of our Savior. Very, very clearly. Because that's what he intended it for. So, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 12. But I need to set the, the stage a little bit. And I think the best place to do that is at the very beginning. Even before Genesis. Genesis talks about it, but even before it was written. God, the God of the universe, the creator God, decided that he was going to create a universe that reflects his glory. That, that was created as a, as a, uh, for the, the, the purpose of worship. For worship. And so he said, he told the angels, he brought them all in, he said, hey, I'm going to create I'm going to create a universe. The elder, and the uh, uh, angels were like, well, what's a universe? And before they could even get the, the question out, God said universe, and a universe existed. There were planets, and there were stars, and there was rotating, and there was a sun, and you know all of those sorts of things. And he said, hey, this one little planet right here, a planet that's going to be known as Earth one day, I'm going to go all the way with that. I'm going to create day, and I'm going to create night. I'm going to create light, and I'm going to create darkness. I'm going to create dry land, and I'm going to create the sea. I'm going to create fish to swim in the sea. I'm going to create creatures to walk on the land. I'm going to create birds to fly in the air. I'm going to go all the way with this. And on top of that, I'm going to put my, my prize creation. I'm going to put my prize creation on that little round sphere known as Earth. It's going to reflect my very image. You're going to, it's going to be an image bearer. You're going to be an image bearer of me, the God of the universe. So he reached down with his hands, I guess, however God does that. He picked up some dirt. He began to form a man who was named Adam. And he began to create, he began to make. A man who would be the very image bearer of God the Father. And when he did that, he created everything. I mean, I mean everything. From the top of Adam's head to the bottom of his feet. Everything was created by the God of the universe. It was his idea. Amen. And God didn't, God didn't need a break and head back to the kitchen and Satan swept in and you know, put the finishes, finishing touches on God's prized creation. That's not how it happened. Everything was God's idea. It really was. And then he gave that creation, Adam, dominion over the earth that God had just created. He said, you're going to be in charge of it. And part of that job is that you're going to name all the animals. So that's what Adam does. He heads out to the Garden of Eden. They march all the animals by him. He's like, this is going to be named that. That's going to be a zebra. That's going to be a horse. You know, all of those sorts of things. And he goes through the whole list of animals. And Adam's the one that's in charge of naming those. And then when it's done, when he is done, Adam and God, the God of the universe, creator God, look at each other and they say, it's not good for man to be alone. 
So here, sin has never entered the picture. It's not even known by Adam that it's a possibility. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so he takes Adam, his prized creation, he puts him in a deep sleep, he reaches into his rib, pulls a rib out, and begins to create Eve. And he creates everything about Eve. From the top of her head to the bottom of her feet, he creates everything. He doesn't get close to need to take a break and go to the kitchen to grab a drink and come back and see Satan finishing off his prized creation. It doesn't happen like that. God, the God of the universe, it was his idea what Eve would look like. Adam comes to. And, and this is probably my favorite part of Genesis. If you read it in the original text, it's a liter- the literary form is alliteration. So, uh, and it, it, it's Adam speaking, so he's like, that's a camel, that's a zebra, that's a hippopotamus, that's a rhinoceros, that's a giraffe. And it's all done in a literary form of alliteration. However, when he comes to, from being in this deep sleep, and he sees Eve, the entire literary form of the book changes to Adam singing. So it goes something like this. Hippo, camel, hippopo- or, uh, rhinoceros, giraffe, woman. <laughs> I mean, he starts to sing. I wouldn't disagree, you know, when I'm talking about my wife. I mean, that's just the way that, that, that's the literary form of the book. And God gives him this command. Be fruitful and multiply. And for the next two chapters, and what a wonderful two chapters they are, that's exactly how they live without any sin. But then... Chapter 3 of Genesis happens. And it breaks down every part of our life. And I'm not sure there's anywhere that is more clearly seen than in the area of sexuality. God created sex for our joy and for His glory. God doesn't get glory from our, our begrudging submission to a list of rules. He doesn't get glory when we white fist a list of rules, hoping to please and appease a holy God. He doesn't get glory from that. He gets glory from our joy, ultimate glory from our joy. And that's clearly seen when it comes to sexuality. He gave us this gift in the confines of marriage for your joy and for my joy and for his glory. He gave us this as a gift. So that he would be praised in and through it. You've probably never thought about sex like that. But that's the reason that he gave it to us. So that it would be literally an act of worship that glorifies the Father and that we would get joy in. But there's many of you, many of us here this morning, that sit here and you think about your past you think about the hurt that you live with. You think about the mistakes and the sin that you have committed. And there's anything but joy when you think about this issue, this topic of sex. I mean, our, I, I don't have to convince you of this. Our society is bombarded with sin in this area. I would rather tell a story, but given the topic, I'll just give you some statistics. It says, uh, let's see if I can find it on here. 
We live in a, co- in a country characterized by, all, by sex of all sorts. For example, the pornography industry in the United States alone brings in revenues of over $13 billion per year. That's more than all major sports combined. The U.S. is the fourth highest consumer of pornography in the world. Every second, $3,000 is spent on it. 28,000 internet users at any one time. If the research is right, men and women, a good significant percentage of men and women that are sitting here in this room and in the earlier service this morning have visited a site in the last seven days. I had a conversation with a person this week about a a, a school that is built on God's word. And uh, they have history in in that school from from the past. And they've moved to this area and they were telling me about it. And there was some issues with pornography at at the school that was built on God's word to send out people that would do what I do. And the president of that school would not even have a conversation about it. Because he knew it was an issue and he was unwilling to address it. It's not just pornography. It's in our stores, in our songs, on our billboards, in our movies, on Facebook. I could go on and on and on. It creeps into our lives, our minds, our hearts, our marriages, our singleness. The average person will view over 9,000 sex acts or implied sex acts every year on television. For a kid from 8 to 18, that's over 92,000 times. 75,000 of them by people who are not married. It has creeped into our culture. It has saturated our lives as believers. And we don't even realize it. Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he's a a pastor and and an author. In an excellent book called The Hole in Our Holiness says this. This is not about the culture out there. It's about those of us in here, inside the church. About what we as Christians are doing, what we're seeing, what we may not know we are doing and seeing. I'm afraid we, including me, don't have eyes to see how much the world has squeezed into squeezed us into its mold. If we could transport Christians from almost every other century to any of today's so-called Christian countries in the West, I believe what would surprise them the most, besides our phenomenal affluence, is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't upset us. It doesn't offend our conscience. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal, just uh, seems like a normal, just way of life. And it's downright entertaining for us. And I think he's right when you look at our culture. So, the question is, What do we do as believers, as followers of Christ, as people that have been, that have come in contact, intersected with the gospel, the good news that God loves us anyway, and bought us with a price anyway, and has forgiven us of those sins. What do we do as believers when it comes to sexual temptation and immorality? Well, I'm glad you asked, because talks, we talk about it. Paul, the, the apostle, talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Let me set the stage. Corinth was a, was a city known for um, sexual sin. In fact, it was, was well known in the known world that every single night, over a thousand uh, temple prostitutes to the goddess of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, would come down from the, the temple into the city of Corinth to practice their trade. 
it was well known that that was kind of the capital for sexual immorality in the known world at the time. And Paul is writing this letter, this letter of 1 Corinthians, to believers who had been saved out of that culture. He was writing to them to say that Jesus is better. Jesus is, is, is more valuable. Jesus gives more joy. Jesus gives more satisfaction. He gives them a new sexual ethic. And so that's where we pick up the story this morning. In chapter 6, verse 12, it says this. It says, Paul is writing. He's giving them this new sexual ethic. That's, that's the topic. That's the purpose. And this is what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So he sets this groundwork. He kind of sets the foundation for the talk that he's about to have. And he says, here's the deal. As a believer, as somebody who has trusted in the gospel, who's been bought by the blood of the Lamb, you and I have great, great freedom. But that freedom is found in glorifying the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your freedom is found in the gospel, in doing what God has commanded us to do. Amen. That's where your freedom is found. And so while... It's lawful why you have the freedom to do it. It's not beneficial. It's not helpful. In fact, if you go ahead down that road, it's going to lead you into slavery. And Paul says, I will not be enslaved to anybody or to anything except for to the Lord. Amen. And then he walks through the next few verses and he talks about this idea of sexual sin. And he says, basically, it, it, it offends the Father. It offends the Son, and it offends the Holy Spirit. And when you sin sexually, it's a sin against your body. And you don't own your body anymore. In fact, Christ owns your body. Whenever your life was grafted into Christ Himself, your body belongs to Christ now. So how can you use it for sin when it doesn't even belong to you anymore? When it belongs to Christ and the, the life that you've been grafted into. And so that's what he talks about, the new, about in the next few verses if you read through it. And he uses this, this contrast of food and, and sexuality and how, and, and how both of them are, are, are passing away, yet your body is still very important to the Father. And he kind of goes through those verses. And so the question I would have is, okay, if, if sex is that important to God and it's all around us, I mean, it invades everything. It invades our marketing. It invades our TV. It invades... All of those sorts of things, everything that we come in contact with, it seems like in our culture, has been infected and affected by, uh, by, by sexuality and unrighteous, immoral sexuality. What are we supposed to do as believers? As people who don't own their body anymore? What are we supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 18 tells us exactly what we're supposed to do. It says this, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. You don't flirt with it. You don't pretend it doesn't exist. You don't talk about it. You don't look at it. You do not even resist it. For goodness sakes, the Bible tells us to resist Satan himself. And he's going to flee. But when it comes to sex, you don't even do that. You hit the road, Jack, and you don't look back. Amen. That's what the Bible tells us to do. You flee. You run. Church, please, if you don't hear anything, hear this. Flee from it. Jesus is better. Flee 
flee, flee. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. I've, ta- I've talked about this. You, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Verse 20. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a great, great price. So, application. Glorify God with your eyes. Glorify God with your lips. Glorify God with your tongue. Glorify God with your hands. Glorify God, and I can work my way down your body. You understand what I'm saying? Glorify God with all of it. All the time. In every situation. Glorify God with it. You may say, Scott, that seems a little bit drastic. That seems a little bit out there. Seems a little bit weird. But here's what I know. That's what you want your son and your daughter to do. That's what you want your spouse to do. Some of you are carrying hurts from people. And that's what you would have wanted them to do. Flee. Run. Cancel subscriptions. Whatever it takes. Run and don't look back. Amen. So I want to give you four, four ways that Mary Jo and I flee. It, this is this is not in God's word. This is this is something that works for us. These are boundaries. These are guardrails that work for her and I in our family. Take them for what they're worth. Some of you, you don't need these. Some of you, you're going to need a list that's a lot longer than this. All right. So take this for what it's worth. This is uh, this is me being pastoral, sharing with you things that have worked in our lives and in our marriage and in our family. All right. So take them for what they're worth. They're not the gospel. I'm not going to think less of you as a Christian or anything like that if I find find out that you don't do these things. That's not the point. I'm just trying to share with you some things that work for us in our family. I want to share with you four things that we do in our life and in our family that help us flee sexual immorality. Number one is this. I don't have lunch. With anybody other than my spouse of the opposite sex. Alone. Alone. That's a boundary. That's a guardrail. That's a system that I have in place. And that Mary Jo has in place. My mom, my wife, I mean my daughter maybe, but you understand what I'm saying. You won't find, you won't won't show up at a restaurant with just me and somebody else of the opposite sex. It just is not going to happen. As best as I can help. Obviously there's times that you get caught off guard, but... That's a boundary that we have. It's just not going to happen. I know a pastor, a well-known pastor, who who teaches. He's been in ministry for over 30 years. And he said that every affair that he has counseled or been a part of, except for one, in those 30 years, started at lunch. Started at lunch. I'm not going to let it happen because I'm not going to lunch. That's the first boundary. Like I said, these are these are guardrails for us. They're not the gospel. It's not it's not sin to have lunch. That's what I understand. Just understand my heart here. This is a guardrail that is in our family. Number two is this: I don't ride in a car alone whenever possible with somebody of the opposite sex. Amen. 
I don't, I don't do it. Um, that there have been two different times in our marriage that it was just unavoidable for various reasons. It was unavoidable. So what I did is I kind of went off. You know, it was kind of awkward, kind of weird. I went off to the corner, called Mary Jo, I said, "Hey, here's what's going on. Here's where we're at. Are you okay with it?" She both times said that makes sense. And it's just unavoidable. One time I showed up at an airport um, to, to work with a student ministry, and it, that's who picked me up. It was unavoidable. So I called her. She understood. Another time I was going to a funeral. Anyway, outside of that, which is probably where I would be if she uh, <laughs> had called. It would have been my funeral. All right? It's, it's one of our guardrails, one of our boundaries. And it's not right. Number three, um, uh, I have covenant eyes on my computer. It's $10 a month, $120 a year. It's worth every penny. I have two people that get a report every single month that shows every single website that I've been to. Amen. And so I have that on my computer. It's a guardrail for me. I need it. You may not need it, but I do. And, and so that's, that's the third. Last one is this, number four. Um, Mary Jo knows all of my passwords, and I know all of hers. In fact, it's... It, we, don't, we have a rule that if I grab her phone, she doesn't ask why. If she grabs mine, I don't ask why. Amen. Um, yes, it, it, it's protection that we need. Some of you are thinking that. So weird. I don't get it. But I need that for me personally. It's just a guardrail that I need. It's a protection. It's a, it helps me flee sexual immorality. Like I said, this is not God's word. It's not the gospel. It's not a sin if you don't have these in your life. I need them. Those are guardrails that I have. It helps me flee and not look back. So in conclusion this morning, I want to look at three things. And that's this. What are we supposed to do now? How do we glorify God in our bodies in light of the gospel? First one is this. Repent of and run from all any and all sexual activity outside of marriage. Repent from it and run from it. Amen. Don't continue to hide it. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. It will come out. Repent of it to those you've sinned against and to the Father. Repent. Get it all out. Repentance really means that I've been walking this way and now under the power of the Holy Spirit, in the blood of Christ, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to walk in a different direction. I'm going to do it. Which leads us to number two with other believers in accountability. Find Christian accountability. After you've said, God, I'm tired of carrying this baggage. I'm, I'm tired of carrying this sin. I just want to repent. God, you, you knew it about it anyway. But just between you and I, I just want you to know that this is on the table. I'm not going to pretend like it's not there anymore. It's, it's, it's yours. I'm going to hand it to you. I'm going to walk in a different direction now. I'm going to run from sexual sin. I'm not, it's not going to be a part of my life anymore. And the only way I can do that is with the help of other believers, other Christians. We have a group that meets here on Monday night. It's going to be starting in a few weeks. And I, they may be full, but if not, I'll connect you to the person. That will help you in that exact thing. Maybe you already have two or three uh, other believers. Guys with guys, girls with girls, in case you're wondering about that. Unwise to do it other ways, any other way. Find people that you can tell your problems to. And that can hold you accountable to it. Christian accountability, if you need that. 
Number two, or number three, I'm sorry. Receive today and rest in the forgiveness and freedom, hope and healing that are found in Christ and Christ alone. You know, one of the things that I loved about working with teenagers when it came to this topic, and I'm not naive to believe that they were all this way, but for many of them, I was able to have this talk before they ever crossed the line immorally. We don't have that privilege here. For most. Every person in here has a history. Has a past when it comes to sexual sin. Things they've done. Things they've seen. Things outside of their marriage. Things their partner doesn't even know about. Things that have been done in your singleness. Things that have been done in your life. Things that have been done against you by somebody else. Sin, pain that you've carried. Their sin, not yours, their sin that you have carried as pain and hurt in your life. I mean, I could go on and list them all and I would still miss somebody's pain. Or somebody's sin. That's in here this morning. But here's what I do. The cross covers it. And the cross wipes it away when you know Jesus. Amen. All of it. And you've got to live in that grace and in that freedom this morning. Live there. And when you start to not believe it anymore, live there some more. And preach it to yourself again. And when you believe that it's not the case for you anymore, live there some more. And preach it to yourself again. If you know Christ this morning, it is not held against you anymore by the God of the universe. You can't hold it against yourself anymore. Amen. So that's all I've got. Repent, be accountable, live in freedom by glorifying Christ with God. And at the end of it all, Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer us for you. Father, amen. Thank you for your word, and I thank you for this sensitive and tough subject. I pray that lives will be released from bondage and that we will be known as a church who flees. Whatever boundaries, whatever reinforcements we need, we would be known as people who flee. May we see your son in the light of who he is. The one who came to give us joy, who gave us freedom who gave us abundance. It's far better than this world has to offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.